tasks in society. They're kind of a permanent underclass. Think bricks without straw here. The film's protagonist in Gattaca is named Vincent. He is an invalid. One of the second things that they kind of line up on is, is that as Vincent grows up in a world that doesn't seem to want him or reject him, he feels like there's another place that he's destined for, a, a place that he wants to journey. For him, also, ultimately, it's to go into space, a place where he says he won't be limited by his birth, a place he ultimately feels will be a homecoming because all of his atoms were once in stars. A third similarity is that though the journey for Vincent and for Israel in their exodus seems impossible, Vincent has an opportunity to make his dream here come true, his longing to be amongst the stars. With the help of a valid named Jerome Morrow, he assumes Jerome's identity and he gets employed at Gattaca Aeronautics Corporation. He becomes a navigator first class and he's assigned on a mission to one of Saturn's moons. But then fourthly, just like the Exodus, right before he's scheduled to leave on his mission, something happens that can make everything go off the rails. There's a murder at Gattaca Aeronautics Corporation. The detectives come in and they find one of Vincent's eyelashes. They run it through their highly advanced DNA database because you've got to know who's a valid and who's invalid. And he becomes the prime murder suspect, murder suspect, since he isn't actually employed there but working under an assumed identity. So after all the painstaking efforts that he's taken to become employed, to, to be able to fake this and prove that he himself is enough to be able to work there, all the while posing as somebody who is able, everything could come apart. The thriller part of the film is whether or not he's going to be found out before he goes on his mission or whether the true killer will be revealed. In the same way that in the Exodus narrative, the thriller part here in this moment is that while Israel has started to leave, Pharaoh, his horses, and his chariots are all hot on their tail. As strange as both ancient Egypt and Gattaca are to our context here, they tell something of this major story that all the scriptures are telling, of a way that we're all born into this world that has sin that tries to enslave and entrap and ensnare us. Maybe in some ways it's through our genes or through our ancestry. But there are also less obvious ways where you have a collar of somebody to grab. Maybe it's by means of the way that we're all kind of, or our culture is maybe a little bit entrapped and captured by these devices. And the fact that you only ever get maybe the feeling that you have 10% of somebody's attention at any given time in your life, which can then lead to this vicious need for approval or validation and being entrapped or ensnared by that which can then lead to a sense of insecurity and a constant comparison to how others are doing, being enslaved to trying to outdo the others that are next door to us. Or maybe it's the way that our culture can lead us into a constant state of continual dissatisfaction. That if we could just get the next thing or be a part of the next thing, we'd finally get there, we'd finally arrive. Or the overcompensation of our society to be addicted to material goods when we're trying to fill a spiritual need or a hunger. Or maybe it's just the sense of hopelessness at where our culture is going or being overwhelmed. In all of these ways, there are ways that the world and sin can make our world feel like it's this big and that everything that we do only ultimately matters this much. 
But that's not the end of the story in our world. Of course, there is sin that's a part of it that tries to enslave us, but then we also have this realization in this bigger story that God has made creation, that we're destined for something else, for an eternity and a kingdom that God alone has made. And in that third movement there, we encounter Christ, who gives us this promise and taste of that freedom. But just like Israel and just like Vincent, even as Christ takes us there, sin is still in hot pursuit of us. It hasn't quite relinquished or let go. There's still a way that maybe it can make everything go off the rails, to recapture us and to show that we were fools forever thinking we could, in fact, be free. You know, the truth of what's happening in that fourth moment for Israel, for Vincent, and for us is that we can't just hope to outrun sin or hide from sin or just try a little bit harder. So is there a way to become lastingly free, I feel like is what's resounding and echoing through this moment in Exodus and why I want to turn to Exodus 14. If you guys have been with us, again, the, the Israelites have left Egypt. They've made their first steps towards the promised land. But what we see here is that the Exodus is more than the Israelites just leaving Egyptian territory. Because God's salvation here is thorough, it's uncompromising. God wants not just a moment of the Israelites' lives, but all of it. And he wants not just one people, but all of creation to return. The Exodus hasn't ended with Israel leaving. Really, it's just begun. And sin, the true plague of the Egyptians, having failed to prop up a kingdom that could withstand God's might and his mercy, has come up with a revenge plan, a sort of doomsday option that if sin can't win and capture Pharaoh and capture the Hebrews, then nobody is going to win. God's judgment and mercy may have brought the proud, stubborn heart of Pharaoh finally to its senses. But sin has a way of pushing all of us beyond our senses and beyond our reason. If you listen to this text carefully enough, I can almost hear it whispering into the Egyptians' ears, echoing back those fears that we heard in chapter 1. That if the Hebrew leaves, if the Hebrews leave Egypt... Everything's going to go off the rails. All the cattle, all the crops, all the children that you lost will have been for nothing. Your enemies are going to invade you, they're going to execute you, and they'll erase your legacy. The bottom line is sin whispers in those ears of the Egyptians is that they're out of options. That there's only one logical response to them leaving here. That they're going to have to be in this mad pursuit to chase them down. As I thought about this text this week, I think I felt convicted by the way that I heard sin whispering in Pharaoh's ears. This necessity, this sense that he has to do this thing, that he has no other options. Maybe because I use that very logic sometimes in my life, right? Well, I have to do this. I mean, what else could I do? What other option did I have in that moment? I say either to myself or to others to justify my actions. This moment in the Exodus makes me realize that sometimes sin's most brilliant tactic isn't to tell us the evil to do, although it can do that. Sometimes it's just to flood our minds with fear, with rage, and with pain, so much that it drowns out the possibility of responding with graciousness, patience, faithfulness, humility, and compassion. 
Sin's goal is to get me to think that in this particular case, in this circumstance, it's the only way that I can respond to it. Right? It's to say my hands are tied. There is nothing else I could do. And of course, that's just slavery in a clever disguise. The only way to be free in this case, in Pharaoh's situation, is to have this prayer without ceasing, to have the humility of heart, the honest vulnerability to say, God, I surrender myself to you in these circumstances, in the midst of this. But even if we've been humbled before, if sin can whisper these fears, anger, and pain into our ears, it has all the leverage it needs. Sin seems to be able to push this panic button in us and to doom us to, to self-destruct at insane attempts at self-preservation. So we have the Egyptians here marching blindly into catastrophe. And perhaps in the chaos, if sin can do it, wipe out all of the Israelites. Or maybe later on the Israelites will just self-destruct and do it to themselves. You see, the problem doesn't end with the Egyptians here. Sin has this perpetual, unrelenting leverage over all of us. And the truth, of the, the truth of the situation is that it's just a matter of time. But the real wonderful thing about the scriptures is that even in light of that truth, God in his faithfulness, even in creation's failure, even in Israel's failure again and again, doesn't give up. In fact, in Exodus 14, 2, a little bit before our passage, God seems to reroute Moses and the Israelites from taking the quickest route out of Egypt. I think Pastor Jeff was laughing at me a little bit this week because I was trying to figure out, you know, where exactly what the route was that the, that the Israelites were taking out. And part of the problem is, is that in 3,500 years, the Nile Delta shifts a little bit. So you can't, but there, we know that there are kind of these two major routes that go out of Egypt. There's one that's called the Way of the Sea and another one that becomes the King's Way. But I think it'd be safe to suggest that in the instructions that God gives to Israel, they're on neither of those routes. They're in a place called Pi Haharoth, which just means the mouth of the sea. And if you've ever seen any depictions of this moment in media, oftentimes it looks exactly like it sounds. It's a place that doesn't have a whole lot of, re a whole lot of routes for retreat, a whole lot of quick ways out of Egypt. So the Israelites, as God reroutes them, are encamped in a place with no options for retreat as though they're kind of preparing for a final stand or a last battle. And as if confirming this final confrontation at the beginning of the passage that I read here, the angel of God and the pillar of cloud move from before Israel to behind them, and it puts them right between them and the Egyptians. But importantly, in this moment, and this is kind of the shocker of this passage, this battle isn't going to be fought with swords and spears or soldiers and cavalry, because it's not ultimately against flesh and blood. As Pastor Jeff has said again and again in the Exodus, this is God's campaign against sin and against the false gods. And for this fight, the Lord is going to use the hands of a shepherd and his staff. And to the wonder of the Hebrews and the Egyptians who are there in that moment, the God of Israel splits the sea in two. This is the moment where God has an answer to sin's unbreakable leverage. Because sin's move is to set us against ourselves, to set us against each other, to play up our fears, our failures, and our anger. 
so that even if we should see the wonders of God unfold before us like Pharaoh, we'll still double down out of desperation and self-preservation, say, I have to commit sin in some way or another. The brilliancy of that is that then sin has this second move to force God, the just judge, into this tragic and hopeless, impossible situation of having to wipe us out again and again and again, just like Genesis 6, until there's nothing left. Sin's revenge here is cruel, it's brilliant, and it's seemingly perfect. But God is just full of surprises. And rather than blasting a crater where the Egyptians stand, God splits apart the sea. And what I don't want you to miss in this moment as God splits apart the sea is that God is sending a message to sin. Because when God splits apart the sea, he splits apart Rahab, the sea dragon, sin's death and champion. Psalm 89.10 reports on this when it says, You crushed Rahab like a carcass. Or Isaiah 51.9, Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? And splitting the sea and Rahab is just a setup for the real wonder that God is about to accomplish here. Because whereas for the other signs, the ten plagues of Egypt, God called for the Israelites to watch while the Lord delivered him, while the Lord delivered them. Now they are themselves called upon to act here in this moment. And their action is to walk through the parted sea. With, you got it, several times mentioned in the passage, a wall of water on their right side and on their left side. If you press into that imagery of Rahab, the sea dragon, having the incarnation of sin, having been split in two here, what would walking between its two halves be a reminder of? See, God here isn't just doing something for them, but in them and with them. When you make a formal covenant, if you go to and turn to Genesis 15, for instance, when you make a formal covenant, you walk through the split-up animals to consider the deadly consequence if you renege on the terms and conditions of that covenant. In this case here, as Israel walks through the sea and through Rahab, they have put their very lives already into God's hands. Because like that, if those walls of water that are on the right and left should collapse back, they would die and be drowned in an instant. They aren't just walking through a temporarily slain Rahab here. They are obediently walking through their own death. In a way, this is brilliant, and it connects with our last week when we were talking about baptism, because here, God is prefiguring baptism through the Israelites as they pass through the sea and through their own death, coming out to life on the other side. Sin's leverage is that none of us can ever escape death or weakness. It's on every side of us as human beings, as living in a world of sin. And sin's ultimate game is to terrorize us with that truth. Sin's game is to tell us every one of us will die, and before we die, it's going to take everything that we love from us. And then tempt us to think that if I just act out maybe and do these few desperate measures, I can save myself from it. To keep me running on that hamster's wheel. But God takes Israel through their very death. And out on the other side where there is life. Because if we have died, death no longer has dominion over us. Because if they come to know that even in death and through death, God is eternally faithful, then sin's threats of loss, of suffering, and of punishment ultimately lose their bewitching control. When Israel goes through the waters of the Red Sea, they die to what they were 
to the world and to sin and are born to a new kind of life in God. That crossing of the Red Sea is a conversion where they now live this way of life where they constantly surrender and have to give up their own lives to know that they're walking, as Jeff will help us cover, when they, even when they go into the wilderness, a willingness to give up their lives, their security, and their comfort only to gain what truly matters, to live in such a way that truly matters. And as they commit to living this way of life, as they covenant, so to speak, informally walking through the sea, sin and death incredibly, unbelievably, and miraculously loses its power and control over them. In Gattaca, Vincent and his brother Anton play this game when they're boys to see who's going to be able to swim furthest into the sea before having to turn around for fear of not being able to make it back to shore. Vincent, who's the one who's born as an invalid, so natural birth, he always loses the game growing up to his brother, who of course has the spear chains. Except this one time, right before he leaves home and he disappears. Vincent says of that moment when he beat his brother, it was the one moment that made everything possible. Near the end of the film, Anton, who's one of the detectives, he's working on the, the murder case that happened at uh, Gattaca. He eventually, he finds out that his brother isn't guilty of the murder, but he does discover his brother's alive and he's working under this assumed identity at, at, the, at Gattaca. And so Anton confronts Vincent and he says, you're an invalid, you don't really belong here. You can't hack it here, you just, you weren't made for this kind of work. But Vincent insists that even though he assumed Jerome's identity, he earned his spot and he reminds him of the day that he beat him in the ocean. So Anton wants to put this to rest, he challenges him to a rematch, right then, right there. And so they go out into the ocean and they swim further and further out into it. Anton starts to get tired, and he says, okay, okay, enough. Come on, we have to go back. But Vincent just keeps on swimming forward, so Anton then decides, and he tries to go forward even as he struggles more and more. Eventually, Anton gets to a point where he's just struggling to stay above water, and Vincent is just plowing along. So then he shouts out to Vincent, and he says, it's not possible. How could you beat me? How could you win? And Vincent swims over to him, and he grabs him, and he starts to pull him back to shore. And while he's pulling him back to shore, he says this. He says, I didn't save anything for the swim back. I thought of that line this week a lot. I didn't save anything for the swim back. The Israelites had to cross the sea knowing that the only way through was to let everything, their past, their motives, their fears, even their lives, go and put it all into God's hand. And to do this knowing that even on the other side they would continue to face certain death. And to make it to that other side and to life, they couldn't save or salvage anything for going back to their old way of life. Crossing the Red Sea calls us to resist sin's temptation, to act out of desperation, to act out of necessity, and instead entrust ourselves to God's salvation so that we might have true freedom. The warning that we receive in this passage about refusing to do so is a frenzied Pharaoh and his chariots themselves being hotly pursued by sin into the very sea that drowns them. Because sin's ultimate leverage against God's saving freedom in us is to panic button our fears or anger or our pain. 
It's why in this moment God invites us into the very heart of the chaos, the seas parted, to give up all that we have and discover that there is life on the other side. This is why when the world overcommits our schedules, we come to worship faithfully week after week because we know that there is true life. Or why when the world seems to swallow more and more of our resources or our income, we still find ways to give to God, to those who are in need, to those who are hungry, to the stranger. Or why when the world wears us out, we nevertheless visit the sick and those who have need of comfort. Or why when we're mistreated or insulted or wronged, we continue to forgive again and again. All of these things have this way of making us die to ourselves and die to the world and die to sin. But ultimately, they can be this moment that reveal the God who is our strength, our salvation, and our solace. You know, we're on a journey this morning, too, to the table, precisely because we are still even, right now in this moment, being pursued by sin and death. But it's at this table that Christ, who died for our sins and was raised again, confronts those worldly powers for this final stand. Sin's deception is to get us to believe that we can avoid or escape death if we follow its mandates, if we obey it. But here we see clearly who we are, what we have done, and what we deserve. But then there's also this wonder at the table, because if we're willing to be honest in that moment, we also have the realization that with the cross of Christ, our death brings us, it calls us to die so that we might live through him. If we're willing to receive God's grace and his mercy, to obediently walk where God is leading us, it can be a passing from death and through death to true life. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful here um, in this moment of the Exodus as the Israelites are passing through the parted Red Sea that you have given to them, you have given to all of creation this gift of no longer being bound and being slaves to sin, even should it try to convince us that it will always have some measure of control or leverage through our death and our mortality, or through our propensity to lose things, to be in a world that's not yet perfected. We ask you, Lord, to give us the hope and the vision, both in this moment and as you send us out from this place, to be able to walk to the places that you lead us, even through pain, even through loss, knowing that there is life on the other side. This we ask in the name of your son, Jesus, who lived and died so that we might live with you everlasting.